The following is a special NDY podcast. Welcome back to our continuing series on Community Cares. We're highlighting uh, charitable organizations and contractors from the Ukraine area. Uh, you know, we, we want people to get involved and donate and uh, just be aware of what's going on in that area. And some of these charitable organizations that are doing great work, boots on the ground in the area, uh, supplying uh, medical supplies, food, and any sort of assistance they can. So we are continuing with that uh, today. Uh, Tim, how you doing? It's good to see you again. JP, it's good to see you. And I'm I'm kind of anxious to have this conversation with our next guest. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation because as I learned prior to jumping on this call, our guest and my co-host, John Masonbrink, lived very close to each other, <laughs> many years apart, possibly, but just the idea that how small this world is. And, you know, as we talked with other charitable organizations and, and contractors that are in that Ukraine region, you know, it, as John said, you know, our goal is just to shine a light on organizations and, and contractors and hope that our audience uh, can dig deep into their pockets and maybe make contributions to uh, the organizations that are, are supporting the relief efforts and medical yeah, Tim, let's bring in this former Hilltop. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Holzhauer is with Samaritan's Purse. He is the Director of International Disaster Response Unit. Welcome, Dave. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Well, as we talked about prior to jumping on, you know, our goal is to really shine a light on what Samaritan's Purse is doing. Um, like to give you a couple minutes. Give us a little background on what Samaritan's Purse is. Sure. Yeah. Samaritan's Purse is an international disaster uh, relief organization, a Christian one that uh, has been around for uh, 50 years. And so it was started by Bob Pierce in 1970, I believe. And uh, and then Franklin Graham took over uh, and has run it for about the last 40 years. And uh, so during that time, it's grown. Um, we have not just do disaster relief, but also uh, we do uh, world medical missions, which works with uh, field uh Hospitals around the world, uh, missionary hospitals. There's Operation Christmas Child. Uh, everyone knows is the shoeboxes, the shoebox program, an evangelism program. Uh, there's uh, a Children's Heart Program, which does surgeries for children around the world with congenital heart defects. There's North American Ministries, which works here in, in the States, uh, doing disaster relief. So there's just a lot of different divisions of Samaritan's Purse. Your organization probably had some insight into what was going on over there prior to everything that happened when Russia invaded Ukraine. You know what what's going on inside the organization? What you know? How do you go from you know the day that Russia invades Ukraine to getting field hospitals up and running in the region? So the day the day the conflict began, uh, we sent somebody over uh, a small team over the following day. Uh, I think that was. Uh, about 60 days ago, I think we're at now. Uh, and so uh, we just, we were ready to move immediately. Uh, like you said, we've been tracking it for a while. Uh, I think, you know, like everybody else, we, we've watched uh, the situation uh, just get more intense and, and uh, we, we've seen it, uh, situations like this before. And so we, we knew how to plan uh, and how to get ready for something like that might happen. And so, uh, like I said, we sent a team over there uh, and, and began working with uh, teams and or other 
I should say other churches, government officials uh, in Poland, and then went into Ukraine um, almost immediately and, uh, and then began assessing needs, talking to refugees as they began fleeing the country, understanding you know, what they needed, talking to church leaders, seeing what they're already doing and how we could come along and work, you know, work to, to empower those churches. So it says, uh, on, on, I was just looking at your website, you're in three different uh, areas around Ukraine. Well, actually, Ukraine, Poland, and Moldova. <laughs> I got to be honest, I don't know where Moldova is. I guess it's pretty close. Um, tell me about, um, you know, setting up, you know, your, I guess, your main stations and, and the response you know, your, units. Yeah, in that area. Sure. Yeah, we... Uh, so when we began, uh, we we set up Poland as our as our logistical base, uh, and and that was sort of our support network for you know getting planes and supplies and people into the region. And then uh, and after that, then we we moved into initially we had been in Romania, Moldova, and Ukraine, uh, and and then during that time, you know, we do the assessments. We're seeing uh, what do people need, where are the biggest needs. Uh, where can we make the most impact and meet, you know, have uh, just trying to meet the needs that, that people have. And so uh, we we set up operations then in Moldova and had been doing uh, medical responses in both Moldova and Ukraine. Uh, we set up a field hospital in Ukraine uh, and then expanded from there and were able to do uh, what we call NFIs, which is non-food items. So we would be giving out things like, you know, winter jackets and socks when it was very cold there. Uh, we began giving out, you know, bottles of water as people were coming across. Uh, we gave out uh, food, food rations, because people were uh, fleeing their their homes with essentially nothing and showing up at the border um, uh, and just hungry. Um, and so we had staff that were in Moldova doing very similar type of things. And uh, I think it was really neat to think how, you know, we were, those were examples of meeting the the physical needs, and then we are also able to have those same staff that were doing those uh, distributions uh, stop and, and pray with people as they're coming across the border, and um, you know just just being a, a loving uh, person that can just take time to say, hey, tell me about uh, you know how can I pray for you, um, you know giving them a hug, uh, just just letting them know that that they're not forgotten. So Dave, uh, you know, from day one, when you guys got started with this and the beginning of the conflict till now, what, what's needed most or what, you know, what is your intel saying about what's happening in the area that, you know, by us donating and our audience donating, what, you know, what are some things that, uh, can help out and what are you seeing as most needed over there? In situations like this, you, you couple things. I think the, you know, for us, we see as, as primary needs, we see, uh, the needs for, for continued prayer. Um, and, and I don't say that lightly. It's, it's something that we, we value. Um, and I think has, has huge impact for, for the people in Ukraine, for peace in the land, uh, for our staff who have been putting on long hours for, for, you know, months on end here. And so I think that's, that's first and foremost, I think, uh, secondary, we look and see, in situations like this, you have uh, countries' systems getting stressed, and so whether that's the health system, the I mean, Ukraine, I think they the number was they they export nearly half of the the world's wheat, uh, and so you know we you look at that and say when, when those systems are then uh, stressed, 
they don't have the ability to to produce enough wheat to to both export and you know earn a living or feed feed their their own people inside of Ukraine. And so we're 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 bringing in food from from Europe and from the states. Uh, we're bringing in clean water systems. Uh, you've seen the the images online of some of these places that have just been decimated. Uh, those places do not have food. They don't have clean water. Uh, a lot of them don't have electricity. So we brought in generators uh, to meet emergency needs. Uh, we're working with the Ministry of Health. Uh, like I said about the emergency field hospital, uh, some of these some of these hospital systems, uh, you know, are running out of medication. They're running out of pharmaceuticals and other pharmaceuticals. Uh, they're running out of hospital equipment, and so we've been doing uh, airlifts of medical equipment. I think we're at almost 200 metric tons of of equipment that's then given throughout the country to to hospitals that need it most. That's a lot of cargo planes. <laughs> it is. We've been doing uh, more than two a week right now for uh, for I think five or six weeks at this point. I'm, I'm curious where do this where does staffing and volunteers for the organization come from? Are they from that Central Europe area? Are they North Americans flying over to the area? Where do the volunteers and staff come from? It's a combination. So we have uh, a number of affiliate offices. We have an office in in Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, uh, and and so we we have what we call they're called DART teams. It's disaster assistance response teams, uh, and those teams are are employees of they're sort of contracted employees that we use that are then you know, when a disaster strikes they're called up and so they you know they let us know. I'm available for a month or two months, and we say, "Great, you know, you're going to slot into this role." And and these are professionals that that will then fly out, uh, whether they're coming from, you know, a number of the places I just mentioned. Uh, they'll fly out to those locations and then stay usually for for somewhere around four to six weeks, and and, the, and then go home. And so we have a a roster of people that that we have that we call upon in, in a situation like this. I'm curious with these dart teams, obviously. You know, we're talking tent encampments, tent cities, basically, where people are living. Security issues. There's got to be major security issues when you have conflicts like this in the region. How does safety become a, a, a number one factor beyond what your mission is on the ground? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, we have a very robust security department. Uh, we have here, we have a an entire network of security professionals uh, that, that track uh, security situations around the world. And so, uh, you know, we have uh, probably 20 or 30 people up here that are, that are constantly working with, uh, our security professionals in the field as well. And so over the years, as we continue to, to work in more dangerous areas, uh, like you said, this is our our number one priority is, is the safety of our staff. And, uh, while we'll do everything possible to keep them safe, uh, we also know that, that we, we do run into the fire, uh, you know, as, as our, President Franklin Graham says, you know, this is not something that we we shy away from just because it's dangerous. Uh, that you know that we don't take reckless risks, um, but we're we're not afraid to go to the hard places. Um, but we do it uh, with a lot of thought and professional input from our security department. Timmy, kind of took my question, but um, I- I'm always uh, wondering the ethics of war. Um, it's kind of an oxymoron, but you know, like 
the press will go into a, a you know a battle area and they have their press hat and their press jacket and they got you know their Kevlar on and I guess you know the opponent doesn't they won't you know go near you know I guess like they said the ethics are not supposed to shoot at these people or, or get them involved and every once in a while you hear uh, you know some you know, tragic event where, a, you know, a member of the press was killed. I know a couple of them in this conflict, but are, are these volunteers wearing this out, you know, these outfits, you know, when they go into these high risk areas, I, I, I mean, I just, I, I'm always curious about that. Uh, no, not necessarily. No, we, we, you know, a lot of our staff will, will wear a shirt, you know, or, or some type of hat that will say Samaritan's Purse on it, but it's not necessarily as a, a strategic, uh, way of, of protecting us. It's just more of identifying, uh, you know, for, for beneficial, for, you know, for, in this case, Ukrainians to know who we are. We are, like I said, we're, we're willing to accept a level of risk and we, we go in with prayer where we ask our supporters to pray, our, our staff here to pray. And, and so there's a level of faith that just says, uh, I'm willing to do this. And, and I don't mean this to sound heroic. I, I don't mean, I'm not trying to come across in that way, but it's this level of, uh, of, of faith that says like, I'm, I'm willing to take this risk. And our staffers are, are say, we're willing to do this, uh, again, not a reckless risk, but, a a, a bold faith that, uh, that, that what we're doing is, is, is where God wants us to be. And so, yeah, no, it's incredible. It's, uh, you know, it's, you guys are doing some great work. God bless you and the organization for, you know, doing this and going into such a high risk area. These are not inexpensive ventures. It costs a lot of money to do this kind of response in areas like this. How how critical are donations? I mean, they're absolutely critical. We we're we're funded almost primarily by by donors and listeners uh, of you know, for example, like on this program. You know, I mean, it's just the bulk of our our funding comes from faithful supporters of Samaritan's Purse and. Uh, and that's something I think that we we rely on. Uh, you know, it allows us to go um, and allows us to go quickly. And uh, you know, if we were in a position where we had to rely on government funding completely, uh, we would not be able to move at the pace that we're able to and to do the programming in the scope that we're doing. Uh, if if we were uh, relying on other sources of funding or competing with other organizations for those sources of funding, and so I think God has given us a. a tremendous amount of flexibility uh, to move quickly and in a big way uh, that that other organizations don't have. And so we're extremely grateful for that. Yeah. And for those that are listening, you can go on our website, uh, mechanicalhub.com. There's a Donate Ukraine, which will take you to a page of uh, different charitable organizations you can um, donate to. Um, for people that want to donate to Samaritan's Purse, Dave, tell us how we can do that. Uh, they can visit our website at samaritanspurse.org. Uh, they can find more information about our, our response in Ukraine, uh, also more information about Samaritan's Purse in general. And there's a, a way uh, on that page to, that says, you know, give or give here to support our work in Ukraine. And they can they can donate that way. Thank you very much for joining us, Dave. Well, thanks. And thank you for bringing attention to uh, to to the situation in Ukraine, I think uh, you know programs like this are extremely important, and it keeps people involved. And for those who can't go, I think this is an, an incredible way to stay uh, involved. And in, whether it's praying or giving financially to support or or talking about the situation over there, I just think it's really important. So thank you all for doing that.
Yeah. And before we let you go, Dave, um, did you happen to see Glenbard West win the state title basketball? I, I did, yeah. <laughs> I did. All right. All <laughs> right. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Come on. Of course. We found oh, out we really. live like three blocks from each other. Not, not at the same time, but pretty close. So <laughs> small world, man. It is. Well, Dave, have a great day, man. Thank Thanks you so all. much for jumping on and tell us, telling us a little bit more about uh, Samaritan's Purse. And uh, for people that want to donate, do so. Donate. Yes. Wow, that was a great conversation with Dave Holthauer with Samaritan's Purse. They're doing great things. They are. Uh, helping out in the uh, area of Ukraine and with, with medicine and food and, and all the supplies that uh, you know they can get over there. So... Um, we're going to transition here and talk to uh, somebody in the States here, formerly of uh, Ukraine. It's Victor Cholinsky, IT Director of Able Distributors in Chicago. So there's the tie-in, Tim, of uh, the trades. <laughs> nice with, little, with nice a- little tie-in. With Able Distributors. So, Victor, let's bring you in. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. Pretty good. So, how, how you know, I mean, obviously, looking at what's going on over there, you've got to be heartbroken. I've said this a million times when I look at what's going on, I feel helpless. And, you know, I'm not even from that area, but it just seems just so, so crushing. I mean, tell us how you're feeling about all of this. Uh, so, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate that people in the industry really don't turn their face uh, away from it and want to know more and want to hear more. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to tell uh, about it as much as I can. Uh, so I've uh, been living in the United States for 10 years. I came here when I was 20. Uh, so it was kind of different. There was one war in 2014, and now there's a second war now. But this time, it's, uh, it's just it's really next level. Um, so... When the war started, it was just a shock and anger and desperation, uh, which slowly turned into, you know, what 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 can I do now, and what how can I be helpful where I am? Um, and obviously, you can't really have anybody, everyone go there and fight. There's there are five people for one weapon, and there are thirteen people for one weapon if you want to do territorial defense, which is like a local militia. Uh, so I've just been trying to help as much as I can with spreading a word, donating money. Um, that's that's pretty much all you can do from here. Victor, I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, uh, you, you said you were 20 years old when you moved over, but uh, yes. give us a sense of the people of Ukraine. You know, very nice. You know, people. The country was growing and uh, kind of progressing as a, you know, a very cultural place. Tell us a little bit about Ukraine. So what you need to know about Ukraine is that it's a very young democracy. When Soviet Union dissolved in the 90s, Ukraine got its independence in 91. So like any other young democracy, uh, things are not easy at the beginning. The economy is weak. There is corruption. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to run, to start your business. Uh, uh, there are problems. There's foreign influence from Russia and it's, it, it wasn't really easy, but the thing is, it was always a democracy. I, I could always see that it's, it's going in the right, it's taking the right path. It's looking towards the West. Uh, even, even while uh, the Russia was spending billions of dollars financing people to you know, push it towards them and bribing it with gas and money, 
it never really took place to look towards Russia. And two revolutions later, 2004 and 2014, they weren't able really to do anything, having all these massive resources to turn Ukraine towards them. It's a young democracy that is really looking towards the West, towards the Western values, individualism, personal responsibility, enterprise. Uh, and I'm just, I, I just really, I really wanted to survive this because it's, it's, it's a really great place. Now, this, the second thing I wanted to tell is that Ukraine is a very multinational, multicultural place. Uh, uh, my father is ethnic Polish. Uh, my wife's father is ethnic Russian. Uh, I have family that is part German, part Romanian. It's a very multicultural place. Uh, and there's never really been, that's never had really been a problem. Um, when I used to go to school, I used to hear Romanian, Moldavian, Polish language. Uh, so when I heard that Putin is going to Ukraine to denazify it, uh, I was just stunned. Like, who are you going to denazify? We have a Jewish president. And uh, our population is so multicultural, like Brazil would like to have a word with us. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. Well, Putin had mentioned neo-Nazis. And like you said, the, the president is Jewish. So I don't, I'm not sure that really fits yeah. the, the narrative for him. But um, Well, yeah. it, it makes sense if you just translate every time you hear neo-Nazi, you just think patriotic. So if yeah. you love Ukraine, for him, that means you hate Russia. So yeah. you're Nazi in that, uh, in that sense. I got you. Okay. Okay. Victor, I'm curious. You know, for us over here, I had heard who I, I kind of knew who President Zelensky was, some of the background, but watching him over the last three months being the leader he is, how proud are you of the job that he's done as the leader of Ukraine? So Zelensky used to be a really big showman in Ukraine. It, he was my my wife's favorite actor. He was in Chicago many times with his shows. And I'm sure you YouTubed his performances and some yes. of them might question your, <laughs> have you questioned him? But um, he was really, really uh, just a comedian and nothing more. And uh, he, But he saw something wrong in Ukraine, which was the pro-Russian government, which was corruption. So he made this show, which was showing a regular geography teacher in school uh, becoming a president and then changing everything ground to, top to top to bottom. And that was his that was his agenda that he went to the elections and he overwhelmingly won the election, more than 70 percent of support uh, on that basis that I'm going to change everything. Uh, and I think he did that. He changed a lot um, in a couple of years. There was uh, the corruption was cut down by many uh, people really felt like you can you can really say anything against anyone and nothing is going to happen. Um, and then when the war started, uh, everybody kind of thought, yeah, you know, it's Russia. It's a massive military. He's probably just going to escape to Poland uh, and, you know, govern from there. But when uh, uh, American government offered him a ride, he said, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. And he stayed in Kiev uh, and he really... He really gave a lot of hope to the, not only to the army, but to the civilians that we can stand up and you don't have to, you don't have to be afraid of this big, scary Russia because we, we have nothing to lose. If we lose Ukraine, what's, what else is there? Like you can't all move to Poland. Uh, you can't all move to the United States. You have to have a home. So it's either that or nothing. And he really, really emphasized that for everyone. And he made it an underlying thing that really brought people together. 
around him. And I have massive, massive respect for him that he is not afraid, that he is really telling the world what's happening, asking for help. And I see that world is responding, especially the United States is helping. So I have tremendous respect for him. And I see him as kind of a, a spiritual leader of Ukraine in current times. Hey, Victor, do you still have extended family over in Ukraine? Absolutely. When I moved here, it was just me. So my parents are there. My brother is there. And same exact story with my wife. She's still there uh, with her and her family is there in the opposite part of Ukraine. So they live in Kharkiv, which is 20 miles from Russia. Uh, and I live 20 miles from Romania in completely polar opposite part of wow. Ukraine. Um, and, and then you, we have some family in Mariupol. Um, so, are, you, are you in close contact with them? I mean, are you keeping tabs on what, what's happening? Absolutely. We talk almost every day. Um, and the problem is that some of the family members we had in Mariupol, that's the city size of Miami that was pretty much leveled. And there's mm-hmm. one factory left where everybody's staying. We lost contact with that uh, family member a month ago. So he used to live on the fifth floor of the of an apartment building. Um, and then he sent a text message that we are in bunker, but in a different house because our house got destroyed. Um, now that was a month ago and we weren't able to contact him ever since. So I'm really praying that, you know, I'll be able to talk to him, see him again. And the other family member that was in Mariupol, uh, it was... Uh, my wife's extended family, she was able to leave on her car while being shot at. Um, and now she lives in the western part of Ukraine. Uh, she was able to get out about two weeks ago. Where is she living? I mean, where is she? Is she in some sort of like camp or is she with other relatives? Or how do these so, people just, they move away and then they leave their homes, you know? Pretty much. You are you only take one bag and you take your passport and couple, you know, some clothing and uh, the most valuable things. And that's it. You, you don't really take anything. So you have two options now. Um, you We have uh, vacation trains running from east towards west and you either stay in the western part, which is relatively safe. And I emphasize the word relatively. Uh, or you move towards the EU. Uh, now the borders are open and they're really taking anyone, especially Poland. There's more than 5 million people uh, who uh, who left for EU. Um, and uh, you have a volunteer system. There is a support system for basic housing, for food, shelter. So people have some pe- people just want to get away from bombing. And then whatever mm-hmm. happens next, it's anything is better than that. So, yeah, it's basically you're just looking a day at a time ahead, you know? Exactly. Yeah, Victor, I'm curious. I know that there's a pretty good-sized population of Ukrainians in the Chicagoland area. For those of us that have lived in Chicago or familiar with the area, there's actually an area called Ukrainian Village. I'm sure you're in close contact with a lot of your Ukrainian nationals in the Chicagoland area. Have there been discussions or what are you doing locally to support your friends and your family over there and your colleagues over there that are fighting? Oh, absolutely. I talked to a lot of people and especially first days of war, everybody was stunned. Like, what, what do we do? Do we go there and fight? What's what's the next step? Um, and our president came up with a plan, uh, which boils down to be helpful where you are. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm here. What can I do? 
Uh, we have this company called Meast, which is translated to a bridge. Uh, what they do, they're, they're, they're a shipping company. So they deliver goods specifically to Eastern Europe and Ukraine in particular. So they post lists of what's required, uh, medical supplies, uh, you know, clothing, diapers, anything that is needed uh, for the refugees. And then we buy that, uh, we pay for shipping, and then they ship it to, uh, to Ukraine. So that's something we do locally. And now in terms of, uh, you know, going there and fighting. So I thought about that. I called my dad. I'm like, dad, what, you know, what can I do here? What if I come here? What's going to happen next? Uh, and then uh, he told me that this is not a second world war. You don't take your gardening tools and go fight and you go, you know, try to kill the enemy. These guys have drones. They, these guys have massive artillery. This is only professionals. And, uh, and he explained to me, uh, you know, my brother wanted to sign up for the army. They told him, we're, you know, leave us your phone, your phone and we're going to call you if we need you. They still haven't called him. Uh, basically, it's all professional army. They have high tech equipment. They don't take civilians. They don't really do take conscript, conscripts uh, like in the Second World War. So the warfare is, is completely different from what I remember from history books. And uh, I... <laughs> Even though I want to help militarily, I know that IT guy at the battlefield will be more of a hassle for the professional uh, army guys. And I'll just, uh, I'll make it more problems for them than help. Um, so I'll, I'm just trying to be helpful where I am, do as much as I can here. So, you know, we're two months into this conflict. Are, are there any glimmers of hope that you're seeing or hearing or anything, um, you know, we on our side, we're talking to um, some charitable organizations that can can uh, help with supplies over there. And I don't know. I just is there any sort of hope? Absolutely. Not only there's sort of there's 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 a glimmer of hope. There's glimmer of win and mm -hmm. uh, a glimmer of Russian defeat. Uh, so if you I don't know if you remember or not, but when the war started, uh, U.S. with uh, U.S. intelligence was saying, you know, Kiev will fall in 96 hours. Uh, given the size of Russian military, given the size of Ukrainian military, that's a very reasonable thing to say. Um, you know, David and Goliath. And first thing you look at Goliath, you think, okay, David stands no chance. However, uh, that really felt apart um, when Russians were going towards Ukraine. They were expecting to be met with flowers. Uh, and be welcomed and be welcomed as, uh, you know, liberators. Uh, what they got were Molotov cocktails, uh, javelins, uh, and pure, pure resistance. So that kind of really stopped them. Um, so uh, they just started getting angry and shooting civilians, shooting civilian buildings, hospitals, maternity wards, any civilian type of infrastructure, they would just start shooting at it. Um, uh, but slowly but surely, um, Ukrainians pushed them from the uh, North Front, which is around Kiev, the capital. Uh, so they got out of there and now they're all concentrated in the east part and they're trying to uh, capture the east part of the so-called, you know, their trash canistans that they uh, are trying to perpetrate as independent republics. Um, so that's where the battle is now. But uh, they got completely destroyed uh, in the north side of Ukraine. Uh, now there is a final battle on the east side. And so far, it's looking pretty good, especially with all the Western support for Ukraine, including the United States, including uh, the EU. Um, it looks like we're finally getting the weapons that are required to, to, to save us. Um, 
Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of where we are. And the other thing I, I want to say is that giving those weapons to Ukraine is not only helpful for Ukraine because think what happens if Ukraine falls. Then there is Poland. Then there is Romania. Then there is Baltic states. All all of them are NATO states. United States is part of NATO. So if there is no help for Ukraine, if Ukraine falls now, we are looking at the fourth world war with, uh, and I say fourth because third was the Cold War, which Soviet Union completely lost and got dissolved. Um, and now this is their revenge. They, 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 they want their stuff back. Thank you, Victor, for, for sharing your story. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, God Victor. save Ukraine and God bless the United States. Thanks for listening to our Mechanical Hub Media podcast. If you would like to donate, please go to any of the Mechanical Hub Media websites and click on the Donate Ukraine button on the top left of the page. <laughs>